Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. Hello. And together, we'll try and answer the question how do you solve a problem like struggling mathematicians? But first, I'd like to take a second to tell you about the Tadapi Discord server. A link can be found as part of the show description. And really, it's a place for members of the Tadape family to chat about all things that we hold dear, as well as supporting each other in our continued professional development. Links have a seven-day limit, but I'll share them regularly under episodes and over at thinkingdeeply.info. But if we turn our attention to the main focus of this episode, what do we mean by struggling mathematicians? I think there are different ways that we can define struggling mathematicians or different lenses through which we could look at this concept. I think it's such a broad topic that we're probably better off looking at one aspect in particular. I mean, we could look at struggling mathematicians in terms of those with particular needs. We could look at struggling mathematicians in terms of different aspects of mathematics that someone or a group of children might struggle with. I think what it's most productive for us to talk about, though, is the kind of struggling mathematician that teachers will most commonly face and that will provide them with arguably the greatest challenges in their practice. And by that, I mean mathematicians that struggle on a lesson by lesson basis because of specific gaps in their mathematical understanding. I agree, because there are lots, in fact, too many contributing factors to what is broadly referred to as struggling mathematicians. So I think if we if we take one refined focus and then certainly revisit other aspects in, in other episodes, I think that'll be probably the best use of the of the format. I think before we go into the common knowledge gaps, you know, the critical knowledge gaps, I think one thing that always really stuck with me was reading David Geary's work. And he speaks, obviously, I think probably most famous for his work on biologically primary and secondary sort of knowledge. But he, he did an extended piece on why children struggle with mathematics. And it's because of the fact that it takes up so much of our mental capacity because it's so, at times, alien. You know, the way we represent mathematics, that you need nothing less than 100% attention and like we say all of those pieces to be in place otherwise we're spending mental capacity on things that we should know don't know and then can't apply in lessons that come forward so and so whenever we talk about you know those gaps that that was the first thing that came to mind and so i just thought it and i will definitely link it in the show notes but i think acknowledging that mathematics itself while beautiful and you know, fascinating subject requires a lot of effort to learn. Um, and those kids who appear to naturally get mathematics are actually benefiting from having a really robust understanding of the fundamentals, I think. Yeah, I think it's also worth noting that perhaps there are different ways to identify children that are likely to be your struggling mathematicians, a way, ways to identify these critical knowledge gaps. Obviously, standardized assessment is one way of seeing 
children that and, and seeing these gaps that these children have and identifying those that might need extra support in a variety of ways that I'm sure we're going to talk about. But in my experience, just as value is the informal assessment, the day-to-day -day knowledge of the children that you develop from what you see in the classroom, what you see in their books, what you see from the conversations that they have. Just a, a very brief aside, it's worth noting as well, particularly if you're not the most experienced teacher in the world, how easy it can be for struggling mathematicians to fly under the radar, particularly because they might copy work from their neighbors. If you uh, employ classroom techniques that involve a lot of collaboration, you're not someone that has any real quiet, independent learning time, it can be quite possible for a student to fly under the radar by effectively copying student, their partner's work or copying the work from different people around the table. I've seen it through the years. And it's sometimes the case where children get further up the school and you'll often have previous teachers saying, oh, well, they're fine in lessons. They just struggle on standardized assessments or they just struggle on tests. And sometimes that is the case. But also quite often it can be students who find a way to keep from you the fact that they are having these struggles because of significant gaps in their understanding. Yeah, that's certainly always been a, a challenge for me, identifying those ones. And then and I think this goes back to the core of what we're talking about is that sometimes, and I'm guilty of it as a teacher, those kids get it. So you think as a you know, math as a homogenous unit, oh, right, they did really well in that lesson, you know, great. Therefore, they'll be fine throughout the rest of the lesson, throughout the following lessons. And so then your attention kind of diverts away from them, which is just kind of like another way that they then end up actually getting, getting lost because they were successful in this one kind of area of math mathematics, you know, because of the hierarchical nature of the subject, just because they were successful in that one little piece of, of the puzzle, as it were, doesn't mean then that the rest of the puzzle is going to go down um, smoothly. So it certainly is something to keep an eye on. This is where I think I get a little bit frustrated when it comes to use of teaching assistants, because there's this narrative that teaching assistants always have to be doing something with the children all the time. And I actually think you get a far better understanding of what the class is, how the class are doing and who those strugglers might be if actually you just position the teaching assistant so that they actually just watch the class because you can just tell from certain you know movements that they might do uh, facial expression those little cues that you might miss out on i think it's actually probably far more beneficial for the, as long as there's that brief kind of conversation being like well while you were doing that input i noticed child a b c d yeah, they were kind of just giving this vibe off that they weren't sure what was really going on. Um, I think that's probably a far more effective way to be using them than perhaps just getting them to sit down with a student and kind of just work whilst you're actually modelling what's actually happening. The teaching assistant relationships that I've had in a classroom that have worked best have been those where we've developed a, a bit of a system of what to do specifically when children are doing something like independent work so that they know that it's independent work time. At this point, they might 
float around the room observing particular children that we know are slightly more likely to struggle. Yeah, developing these routines, making these things explicit with a teaching assistant can be something that supports the learning in your classroom in, in, in all subjects, regardless of whether we're talking about mathematics or struggling mathematicians in particular. I've actually had to utilize that sort of system a lot because I'm, you know, quite often in five or six different classes a week. And I don't know those classes as well as I would if I were the, you know, their main teacher. And so I will ask them, you know, in your opinion, how have they responded to this? You know, is this what normally happens whenever they encounter something along those lines? You know, because I'm more often than not modeling being responsive and picking up on cues, which are much easier to come by if you teach a class every day. And so I find those conversations with teaching assistants invaluable because I'll say, okay, what's your feel for this? You know, do I think that we need to move on to X? Do you agree? Or is there something else you think we need to focus on first? And so I essentially, I feel like I have to have that system in place simply because I can't be familiar with all 1,032 children in, in our schools and yeah, so and so as you were saying that animal, yeah, I've accidentally come across come onto that behavior because it was it was necessary in the context. So definitely I think having that discussion and making time for that discussion is is a useful way to um to utilize teaching assistance. Yeah, I totally agree. I say it's hard enough doing it when you're just doing it with 30 children that are known 1192, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, it's it's good fun though. You know, I don't remember all their names, but I I remember all their faces and certainly, you know, I'll sometimes spend six extended weeks in one class, you know, teaching most days of the week and then you really get to know them and then you'll see them a year later for a six week period and you'll be like, yeah, you know, and then you know, I think, you know, certainly the better you know them, the easier the job is in general. You know, one th whenever you were talking, Chris, I was thinking back to the episode on subitizing and how we were thinking about all the different pieces that connect that supertizing connects to and the supertizing, you know, the wheels of supertizing greases. And I think those informal assessment situations are realizing that in order to do this, there is a, a layer of prerequisites that, that come before it. You know, that, that seems to be quite a common way to describe it at the moment. Which knowledge gaps do you guys think are most common, potentially most critical? And then how would you remediate them? It's hard to judge in terms of what's most common without, like you say, you said most critical there. I think the two have to go hand in hand because, for example, I see children all the time mixing up area and perimeter as a particular knowledge gap. And that is relatively common, but that's not something that I find constantly holding back children's learning in a variety of lessons in the way that other aspects of mathematical knowledge being missing can do so i think fans of the podcast should they exist will not be surprised to hear me mention number bonds in particular specifically addition and subtraction facts inside 20 because they are the underpinning bit of knowledge for so much more it can take months and months and months to teach and to understand and to grasp these number bonds inside 20 once you have them, you can then build on them so much more easily. So 
you know, teaching a child that who has decent place value knowledge, and I'll come back to that in a moment, who has decent place value knowledge that you can use nine plus seven to calculate 90 plus 70 or 900 plus 700 is completely based on their number bonds and actually a relatively quick thing compared to the development of those number bonds. So I think that's the place where I would start. Probably going to say whatever, if you were just to reel off a list, I imagine the lists would be particularly would be the same to be honest because i've got number bonds then kind of linked to that like number sense place value but particularly the concept of like unitization i find some children always kind of particularly really do quite struggle with that particular aspect when we think about place value and also times tables as well you just kind of find those are the things that hold the kids back and those are the things that you know i think if you ask any yeah, upper key stage two teacher, you know, what do you wish these kids came up to knowing, you know, off the back of like the back of their hand, I think they'd all say, you know, times tables, just because so much of what we do in terms of you know, fractions, percentages, all kind of um, fall back on that times table knowledge. Yeah, and you can diagnose these things relatively simply once you've got a bit of experience. Key questions like what's 1099 plus one or what's 1099 plus two and how commonly you would see 2000 or 2001 because they've got this idea that well when i see some nines i'm going to go up to the next thing with lots of zeros and that's as far as their place value understanding has progressed when they're talking about numbers beyond 100 so these kind of little diagnostic questions can be invaluable i think you did write about multiplication tables as well similar to number bonds once children grasp, you know, that 35 divided by seven is five, being able to apply that to 350 divided by seven or 350 divided by 70, etc., is so much easier. And I think the thing about number bonds, multiplication tables, place value, I think those are a very much like a key three, is that once those are grasped, they seem to crop up everywhere they crop up in your teaching of time your uh, written methods fractions area and perimeter it's it's almost impossible to avoid them which means that if the gaps are there it's almost impossible to teach or it's almost impossible to move on which makes things yeah really challenging i think a couple of things i might note beyond that would be things that relate to the field axioms so a general understanding of things like the dis distributivity of multiplication is one that seems to crop up quite a useful thing for children to to, to understand um it comes up quite a lot and that's a gap that's often worth plugging perhaps not to the same extent as the the big three that have been mentioned also things like compensation the value of being able to use compensation for addition and subtraction and just having that kind of that that's a kind of different bit of knowledge it's a very specific conceptual idea that once they've grasped it they can apply it to a variety of different numbers but again is something that if it isn't there really tends to hold children back but i'd absolutely agree that you know, something of a big three, multiplication tables and related division facts, number bonds and place value understanding. It's really, it's really interesting listening to you guys talk about this because in one way or another, everything you've mentioned, I would classify as a threshold concept. 
And the reason I, I wanted threshold concepts in thinking deeply about primary mathematics is because if we acknowledge those thresholds, then we are considerably more prepared to address them. You know, um, I'll give a brief summary, but obviously there's a chapter in the book. You know, I think the things that are important for primary teachers to know is that they are, you know, this the, the iterative nature, you know, it's, it's that interconnected nature that, that you guys are talking about and how each piece allows access to many, many more pieces. You know, they're normally the most troublesome. So the most difficult things to learn are the most important things to learn. They are discursive in that they change the way we can speak about mathematics and the way we can articulate our thought. You know, because I, I quite often find that with many of the kids that I teach, it's not that they haven't noticed the pattern, it's just that they can't express it in a way which allows them to make the connections. And then I suppose possibly the most important is that it changes your entire sense of self. So it's like you, you know, your example about place value, Chris. When you understand place value, by the time you get to four digits, we can't understand the actual size. You know, I think, I don't know, I can't remember when I gave the example, but it was the difference in our minds between a thousand years and 10,000 years is non-existent. You know, I, I certainly don't perceive any difference. It's just a long time ago. And we as humans find it difficult to perceive things that are beyond the scale of our lives and the scale that we exist in. You know, so ages, years, you know, probabilities when the, the probability is massive because we can't imagine so many different iterations. And once we go through that threshold, we are completely changed. And then we can use it to make more connections, to articulate more clearly, more accurately, and more, more sort of proficiently. And so I think if we as teachers change the narrative towards threshold concepts, then I think we allow ourselves the opportunity to address this group of very, very important concepts. And I, you know, I have read criticisms of the idea of threshold concepts, but I think what I read went beyond the practicalities of the classroom. You know, it was a niche argument where they were talking about the, the foundations of the theory itself. You know, I'm basing my stuff on Meyer and Land and their 2003 paper and sort of the stuff that came from that. But I think in terms of in the classroom, if we look at this set and we look at the features of the threshold concept, then we can make decisions on what to do next based on those. Yeah, I think that makes a huge amount of sense to, for want of a better phrase, to conceptualize it in that way. I think the other thing to note about these threshold concepts is that they're perhaps tricky for children to learn for slightly different practical reasons as well. I think the... Place value is quite a difficult thing to exemplify and to represent, despite the you know excellent use that teachers often make of base ten equipment or number tracks or whatever it might be to, and even things like number squares in order to show different aspects of what we mean by base ten. So that's kind of quite conceptually complex and often perhaps one might argue doesn't get the time dedicated to it that is required. Whereas I think something like number bonds, depending on how you look at them, either they are problematic because there are so many of them to learn and it takes, if you try and learn them all in one go, it's just not going to take. And it's something that takes 
persistence and a little and often approach across a very long period of time. Or, or I would suggest, and there are actually lots of little conceptual pieces that go into allowing children to develop automatic recall of number bombs, the things like, uh, like, like talking about compensation. So looking at things like near doubles, looking at um, uh, bridging through 10, looking at different ways of dividing up um, single digit numbers. It, there's, there's all sorts of bits and pieces in there that then contribute to an understanding of number bombs. So yeah, there are a couple of reasons why that can be challenging. And it's ditto, similar with multiplication tables. There's just quite a lot of facts to to grasp over a long period of time. And so it requires a little and often approach. And if you don't have that little and often approach, very hard to pick it up all in one go. Yeah, I, I accept the idea that the threshold concepts in general are very, very complex. But I, I, th I think it doesn't necessarily make a distinction. You know, if we think about what pupils will have naturally developed before they encounter number bonds, I think it can be equally complex an idea. To, con to consider how this composition sort of works and the fact that this generalizes to many, many other situations, you know, so I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't draw a distinction between the different parts just because they appear more straightforward to us, you know, I think if, if I'm thinking, you know, certainly at four, five years old, we're expecting children to come into contact with ideas, if we think that they'd just at three and a half on average developed an understanding of cardinality you know we mentioned that when we talked about the you know the principles of counting at one point or another what we're focused on in terms of struggling mathematicians these things are complex anyway these things change who you are as a mathematician anyway if you don't have those pieces imagine how difficult that job is now you know as as a learner to try and learn something that the average if it exists you know air quotes people will will find difficult anyway, you know, I think it, it almost amplifies the point, you know, and, and that's not to be argumentative, that's just to sort of round it off my thinking as we're speaking, you know, because I'm using this as CPD for me. <laughs> no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, as you said that, I started thinking about the idea that actually what might seem a bit more complex to us as teachers isn't necessarily what is complex for the student. I mean, as soon as you started talking, I thought about, oh, yeah, what about I mean, arguably the most complex bit of understanding that any children have to deal with when it comes to mathematics is the grasping of what a number is. What 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 does four mean? <laughs> I mean, because that is a philosophically complex thing to actually answer. And we have to then hopefully approach it through multiple examples. And yet, as a teacher, it could be quite easy to fall into the trap, as I arguably did a moment ago, of just thinking, well, that's, I don't have too many problems getting children to work with this thing, and thus it isn't actually as conceptually deep as something else. Yeah, strong arguments there from both of you. Just while you were having that lovely back and forth, I just kind of got my brain thinking as well. It's just a few other things that, from my, my own practice, that from taking for granted may be held some children back perhaps not not to the extent perhaps of not knowing number bonds not knowing times tables but certainly having a true understanding of equality and the equal sign is something that i've always spent a good 
lesson or two really exploring in depth as to what those two lines that we put in one box actually mean and how you can manipulate that sign to do some weird and wonderful things that you know totally seems to just it's just that change in mindset from from of the children of oh this sign just means i put an answer next to it versus all right i am balancing something here what is on the right matches on what is on matches what's on the left so that gives you that freedom to play around with mathematics a lot more again probably not as uh won't hold children back as much as not knowing those number bonds but it's just one of those small little wins that i've found that have really kind of helped children kind of make some sort of conceptual leap in those in that mathematical understanding and it tends to be those children who do kind of struggle a little bit with maths where they have that mindset of oh this symbol just means that i put what I think the answer is there. Um, and the other thing that I just thought about was just um, general mathematical vocabulary. I, it, I don't want to uh, generalize here, but certainly from my experience, those um, children who we're putting in this category as struggling mathematicians also tend to be struggling readers or their vocabulary isn't as developed as perhaps other children are. And so really spending some time to focus on mathematical vocabulary so they can do as I think you mentioned alluded to it Kieran so they can explain in detail what these threshold concepts are or where they are in their personal grappling with this idea if you know they don't have the vocabulary to actually explain any of that it just makes our job at diagnosing where they're going wrong that much harder so being very explicit and making sure that children know the vocabulary but also teachers making sure that the vocabulary that they use when teaching these concepts is really important. I know for the first kind of three or four years of my teaching, I used the word number and digit you know, interchangeably. Oh, yeah, go and put this number in the place value chart. So they put 36 just all in the ones. And I'd be like, well, no, but really, when you think about it, they put the number in the place value chart, what they did was correct. Whereas if I, you know, really thought about my practice more deeply at the time, right? I want you to put the digit three in its correct place value. That again, just makes that learning easier for those children as well. This often comes down to the examples that we use as well as the vocabulary, which is an important point that you made. It comes down to the examples that we use. If children only see two, three digits, whatever it might be, plus minus um, symbols on the left-hand side of the equation and, and then equals, and then here it comes, then uh, show an answer here as such, then that's the view of equality they, they're going to um, come away with. That's the, their understanding of the equal sign. It really comes down to making sure that they see a variety of answers. I had a conversation actually the other day with my partner who I, I've, I've said a hundred times, secondary maths teacher, um, very fortunate to be able to talk mathematics with her. We were talking about how rarely, if ever, teachers talk about what is actually going on in an equation or what it, what it means to put, for want of a better phrase, the correct answer. How often in your career have you talked to children about the fact that, oh, well, 
what we're usually looking for is the simplest version of an answer. So for example, or simplest version of one side of an equation, shouldn't use the word answer there, the simplest version of one side of an equation. What I mean by that is, let's say there was uh, an exam paper, uh, let's say year six sats, and a question said 70 times 50 equals. If a child then wrote 700 times five, in the answer box, they wouldn't be wrong, but they would not get the answer. And yet how rarely have we talked to children about the idea that, yes, well, while this symbol represents equality, what we are usually looking for, if in doubt, a convention, what we are looking for, if in doubt, is the simplified version or the most simple way of representing whatever it is that balances this equation. How rarely do we actually talk about that? I, I know I haven't across my career, and yet it's something that we just leave implicit when it comes to mathematics, when it comes to dealing with equality. You're going to love Andrew Jeffrey's episode because he has a superb anecdote about equations and about the reasoning that's happening and how we only see the tip of the iceberg. You know, so I, I, won't, I won't put any spoilers because it's about three weeks out, but... Uh, yeah, it, it really complements that well. So I'm going to see if I can chop them up and put those points together. I, I've been really heartened to see the conversation nationally move towards curriculum prioritization, you know, in particular the work the NCTM have done, you know, we're doing prior to the pandemic, where they were saying, here are the things in the national curriculum that are really important. These are the things you need to prioritize, you know, because it's no secret that um, I think most of us think that there is too much in the national curriculum. Certainly our secondary colleagues think that there are things that they'd rather we didn't teach at all. You know, I know we've discussed this in the past. And by moving to a model whereby they've mapped out or they will soon have mapped out what's most important in terms of what our pupils leave primary school knowing and understanding, I think helps a lot in terms of the time we can dedicate to our struggling mathematicians, you know, because if we have a focus on here are the things that are most important, the things that unlock mathematics, you know, the whole way through life, do these really well, then I think we're off to a, a better start than if we're not thinking with that mindset. It's worth, I think, being quite precise about what competence means in these areas because it's one thing to think oh well children have grasped their number bonds when they can answer seven plus five in some form it's another thing to quite precisely say well i want them to be able to answer seven plus five without having to explicitly count on i want them to be able to answer it either using some kind of um, quick calculation strategy or ideally moving into automatic recall that's, it's, it's important, I think, to have a, a, an idea in your head as a teacher of what you mean by this is a gap and this is an area where they need to um, improve and, and where you want them to get to, rather than just an idea of, oh, okay, this is a gap and I, I just want them to get a bit better at it. Having a real kind of idea of what competence, or dare I say, you know, reaching a point where you're, you know, really uh, confident with a particular thing, what that looks like when, you, you, when you've got there. I think I've, that leads on quite nicely to the sort of the second half of the, of the chat, 
when might interventions be necessary and how might they be employed? In terms of, I think, when, obviously you're going to have, I'll answer this in two parts, obviously you will have those children who do need it. I think the proactive leaders will look at how you can support those, but also think about, well, what has gone wrong within the mathematics curriculum in my school that has resulted in children actually needing this um, remediation in the first place. So I think it's a good way to think about it in your kind of like your cure and your prevention strategies that you might then go and uh, put in place. So I think when we want to put cure um, strategies in place, I think certainly making sure that you're using high quality diagnostic questions is really important because that just really focuses the attention on what it is that those students don't know about that particular mathematical idea, which means that then you can really target that short amount of time that you probably have with those children to make sure you are you know, filling a gap. Uh, I wouldn't be using summative assessments like a SAT paper, for example, if I was trying to assess um, where a child, I think, needed some extra support in because you know, assessment theory and all of that it tells us you know, best not to use summative assessments necessarily for formative um, purposes. So definitely making sure that you have those high quality diagnostic questions, making sure that ideally the most qualified person available is available to actually do those interventions. Certainly through you know, my time in the classroom, you know, I've not been the one to deliver those. And it's kind of something that I've kind of, you know, really reflect on and really kind of make sure I think about how best to make that time that means that I can be the one who does those interventions. So anything about those, you know, models, manipulatives that you are going to use, finding the time to do it is always a struggle. I know a few schools, you know, try to do some sort of same day pickup to kind of prevent those that are struggling to fall further behind. And I know obviously we want to ensure that children do get a broad balanced curriculum however some realism needs to come into it what would you rather children not know leave a little you know miss maybe 20 minutes of a history lesson or actually leave primary school being mathematical and you know it's a an ethical question which you know it's not particularly a, not a nice one to choose but I think you know when you weigh it up and think of it like that I think the answer is quite clear and I also think, and I'm looking forward to hearing um, how schools get on with this. Um, certainly, you know, um, Complete Maths and LaSalle have seems to have done a, you know, an excellent job with Tutor. For those of you that don't know, it's an online online platform, very affordable of online tuition, which can you know diagnose children where they're at in their mathematical journey and offer uh, videos offer questions to actually have a look at how well children are learning that mathematical journey and you know you can set those prerequisites for a, an objective that you might be teaching so if you know you're going to be doing rounding you know to the nearest um, thousand or ten thousand you want to make sure that those kids can actually round to the nearest ten and the nearest hundred you can give them that to do and then you that will the week before or perhaps as you know a bit of a pre-assessment perhaps at the beginning of the week or you know during an assembly time and that will just allow you to then really focus and make sure right i know 
for them to access this next part of their learning journey that they're doing with me. I need to make sure they have ABC. Here's something that I'm going to ensure will tell me whether they have ABC before I try to teach the next um, part of the sequence. I would say that the way that interventions are distributed across a week needs to quite carefully match the thing that you're looking to support children with. So for example, if you were looking at supporting children with fluency of multiplication tables and related facts, it would make sense to do a little and often five or 10 minutes a day, however it might fit with into your timetable. Whereas if children had particular issues with place value, you might decide that you're better, better off with 30 minutes once or twice a week. The way that the, um, like I say, that you need to match what it is you're trying to teach to the distribution of time. I would also add that from my experience, if a teaching assistant is going to run your intervention, making sure that you frequently communicate what it is you're seeking to achieve, making sure that it's working properly. This is not to um, say that teaching assistants won't themselves kind of come to you and approach you and say, oh, I think this is working or I think this needs to change. But it can be quite a it can be quite a difficult having been a teaching assistant. It can be quite a difficult power dynamic to go to a teacher and say, I don't think this bit is working with these children, with this child here. And this is why. I mean, plenty of experienced teaching assistants will have that confidence to go and do that. But sometimes I think it makes sense for teachers to be a bit more maybe assertive and proactive in making sure that these things are working the way you want them to. I would say really under discussed part of interventions as well is exemplified by some of the pupil progress meetings I've been in over the years where I've sat down, we've been at a table and I've heard a teacher say that a particular student struggling with mathematics and they want to put a, a number bonds intervention in place. And I think, oh yeah, brilliant. That, that makes loads of sense. And then over time through working with that teacher and working with that class, you find out that actually there's a big chunk of the class who are also struggling with number bonds to some extent, perhaps not to the same extent, but they are struggling with it to the same extent. And yet you've got this small group out of the room working on number bonds, maybe, you know, during a history or an RE or a lesson or an assembly. A key point here is that it only really needs to be an intervention if it's something that the rest of your class do not need to work on. Because if the whole class needs to work on it, it isn't an intervention. It is something you have to try and bring into your practice. I know that sounds like a obvious and mundane thing to say, but the amount of times I've seen interventions where I've thought, actually, no, the whole class needs this. Why is the whole class not doing this for five minutes a day? Um, so that's, I think, something to, to bear in mind. One last thing just to mention, I know this is gonna, this is gonna sound very odd, but when I was a teaching assistant, I ran quite a few interventions where the teacher was almost apologetic by set to say, oh, well, I know this is going to seem a bit repetitive and boring at first, but honestly, stick with it. I promise that. And particularly with mathematics, what I found was that children were not bothered by the things that teachers thought were going to be boring and repetitive. Children loved repeating things and seeing their competence grow over a longer period of time. So don't worry perhaps about things looking boring and repetitive to you. 
I, again, from being on both sides of the situation, but from being a teaching assistant running interventions and a teacher running interventions, I think sometimes that um, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of repetition, or in fact, it's something absolutely essential about repetition. And don't worry about aspects of that that you might think are tedious. Yeah, adult projection is real. You know, there's, there are times I have to ask myself, is it me who's really annoyed here or are they having an off day? You know, and nine times out of 10, it's me <laughs> You know, because I haven't got to sleep the night before enough. You know, I think I'll, I'm 100% on board with what you guys are saying. Whenever I saw and thought about the question when, I immediately thought of at the very start. You know, the first thing came to mind was Bernie West cut share this, so I'll need to go back and find out exactly what the stat was. But it was something like kids come in at times to nursery or reception classes with an 18 month, there's an 18 month gap in existence. And then by the end of reception, that can be as much as 36 months. And then obviously, as we know, by the time they get to year seven, that gap can be close to seven years or in secondary school, it can be close to seven years. And I think as a school and thinking structurally and systematically, intervening in the early years, and I don't mean formal intervention early years, I mean the way we, we've described it as we've described it in, in past episodes where we looked at early number. Intervening in year one, perhaps year two, year three, and then year four. And if you do that successfully, five and six are a piece of cake. You know, they're a blast because you get to do the fun, well, in my opinion, the most fun set of primary school maths. And there's no stress about the fact that all these pieces from really important year groups, you know, whenever I ask people, what's the most important year group? Gareth Metcalf talks about transition year groups, you know, talking about year three, year one. Everybody always goes to year one. Intervene then, intervene early, and you will make life in school so much easier. So that, that's the first thing that came to my mind. You know, Neil, you're talking about tutor. You know, when, whenever LaSalle got in touch with me about tutor, I was on board the very second. When they mentioned, when they told, told us about their plans and about how they wanted to make it available to every child, you know, regardless of their economic status. You know, I, I couldn't have been more on board. And then as I saw, you know, colleagues' lessons and the project progress, I thought this is something I would like to utilize. You know, and certainly we've got to the point where as our confidence in teaching mathematics and our capacity to teach mathematics has improved over the lifetime of the project that we've got going on at the minute, pupils have fewer and fewer gaps as they get up to school. And, and so we're going to try and utilize tutor with those pupils who we feel struggle, need intervention, and need intervention of a high, very, very high quality so that all pupils are on this journey and they are enjoying that journey because it's not a struggle anymore. And it guarantees you that, that standard of instruction. And before we, before we sort of committed to it, I said, if this does all the things that I hope it does, then it, it could potentially be really, really powerful. You know, and I said to you guys, I really hope it does X, Y, and Z. And then I went to the webinar and it said, you know, there, it has retrieval built in. It has those diagnostic questions. It has, it, it has the ability to identify what a pupil needs and build on those prerequisites. All the things you want from a really high quality intervention. You know, and I'm not being paid to say this. 
I am just sort of planting my flag. And I hope in, the, in a year's time, I will be able to say this has had a marvellous impact on those pupils who, for one reason or another, were unable to, um, to engage with education during the sort of the peak of the pandemic. You know, so I think it's well worth looking at if you are a school with pupils who did not engage or with pupils who have who appear to have significant gaps as a result of the, the the partial closures that we've sort of been through the last two academic years but i think if we think about how might they be employed it very much builds on what we said and what tutor has built into it you know we are thinking about what are the prerequisites how can we model this in an expert fashion and then over time like you say chris have they actually learned this? Has learning taken place? And so that in two months, three months, four months, this is something they can utilize in the classroom. And while we're on the subject of effectively companies that are doing things that we admire, I think it would be you know, remiss of me not to mention Numbots, Times Table Rockstars, because you won't find teachers in primary schools who, where it's been deployed and been deployed well, that haven't seen it had a positive impact on number bonds, multiplication tables. So certainly something to consider. Uh, and I, I'm going to sound like a salesman here, but it really is dirt cheap compared to a lot of stuff that schools do. So yeah, consider that. I mean, and it's something again, that can be run at a, in a quite a simple fashion. It's something that can fit in with the idea of a little and often um, intervention that can have an impact in these areas. It's something that can be, it, it, the systems that are built into it work in a similar way to what you're describing with tutor i think obviously on a much narrower aspect of mathematics um but still have this idea of retrieval a cumulative sense of development built into them so yeah consider those i think when you consider the let's say the potential of tutor and like you karen i uh, full disclosure i did do a bit of work with them but not been paid to actually say you know, anything that I have said, so should it work as it's intended to? I think when you think about what I said earlier about there being kind of like two strands, this cure and prevention, when you think about prevention side of it, I think if you, you almost have like a holy trinity there of things that are going to, at a reasonable cost to schools, that could actually mean that you don't end up having these large numbers of students with all of these gaps if you've been giving them that time for number bots timetable rock stars and tutor there just at the point where it's actually needed i think could be quite a powerful combination for schools i find that there's a definite correlation between those people who engage with time stable rock stars and are confident mathematicians you know I, I couldn't say in an academic paper hand on heart that it's not partly because those kids naturally work harder in general but i can definitely say that if you're not working hard on rock stars your chances of success in primary school mathematics are greatly reduced you know so i think that's worth worth thinking about we've been using it since 2017 i think you know so quite a big sample and over the years this pattern has borne out you know those pupils who who fly in sort of year five and six are those kids who put the legwork in with uh, with practice in their time tables. You know, I suppose it makes sense, doesn't it? To what extent does dealing with confidence issues come into it? And how does support for struggling mathematicians change 
as children move through primary school? I think those two things, I think you're very sensible to put those two things together because the big difference between working with struggling mathematicians in say year five, six and working with struggling mathematicians say in key stage one is the way in which their self-esteem has become wrapped up with the struggles that they have in mathematics. I think from working with children further down the school, you can almost go into intervention work with a blank slate. You can just go in and say, okay, we're going to try this. We're going to do this. Let's do this. And it'll be lovely. The further up the school you move, in my experience, the more that you have to unpick issues relating to confidence. In fact, I'd argue that almost like the first thing you have to do is you need to separate that link between their struggles with mathematics and their self-esteem. And what I mean by that is you have to almost entirely avoid praising children for getting things right because you will, in a lot of cases, because you will amplify their sense of a lack of self-worth or self-regard when they then get things wrong. You almost have to be kind of completely neutral about the whole thing, at least for a while. You have to separate that link between you know, how they feel about themselves when they're doing mathematics and whether or not they're getting things right and wrong. One of the ways to do that is to almost play that system a little bit is to give them the opportunity to get lots of things correct for a while, which might sound counterintuitive because you're thinking, well, if they're getting lots of stuff right, you're probably not teaching them something brand new. And to an extent, there is a sense of trust to be developed there by giving them lots of things to do where they can show their competence. But a big part of that is to get them getting lots of things correct and don't make it the biggest thing in the world. Don't say how wonderful they're doing or how brilliant it is that they're getting things right because you're just setting yourself up for problems when you work on the stuff with which they struggle. You have to separate that link between confidence and their you know, they're, how they feel about themselves and how good they are at a certain aspect of mathematics, particularly, as I say, as you move further up the school. And uh, you've pretty much told my answer verbatim. I literally just wrote, the older they are, um, the issue of confidence is going to be you know, massive because, you know, they've gone through, potentially gone through the whole mathematical career, not getting that dopamine hit that you get when you you know, when you solve a problem, when you do get something right and all they've got is that frustration. So I literally said, when planning the, those initial mathematical interventions, plan for initial success within those interventions so they are starting to feel, oh, yeah, this is something that, you know, I can do. But, and then, as you say, you make a great point there. Don't then overpraise, you know, an 11-year-old because they can play a quick game with dice right and add up the numbers quicker than you can because you're you know you talk about i know mccourt talks a lot about trust and how that trust is you know a massive part of the whole learning process and yeah effectively you're just delaying or at worst you know denying that trust from actually taking part and say it's a totally different ball game in the lower down the schools they are because you can take them say we're going to go play a game 10-15 minutes and they're fine they're happy as Larry well they tend to be anyway that we haven't quite developed that self-awareness yet that 
you know, maths is something that they can't or they feel that they can't do. I think you're both spot on. I think the advantage we have as primary teachers is that it's not too late to break down that sense of self and rebuild it in a way that is more conducive to success and to confidence and to a self-image that is a positive one in terms of mathematics. You know, I think if I think back to who I was when I was 16, and this is totally anecdotal, a lot of that person still exists and a lot of those neuroses still exist. I reckon someone teaching a pupil who is struggling at GCSE will have a much more difficult job of rebuilding that person up as a confident, proficient mathematician. I think if we think about the journey that our kids go through in history or geography and their understanding of who they are and their place in the world is only really being shaped in the, what, seven years that we have them. I don't, I, I, th I genuinely think it is early enough, even if a kid is in year six, to strip down all the stuff that is holding them back in terms of becoming confident mathematicians and building them up. You know, and I think it goes back to our feedback session that we had the feedback episode. When you're in a session with a pupil who has historically struggled, it's about saying, look, you've done that correctly. You know, you have understood this. You know, look at what you can do when you work hard, you know, and, and piece by piece, they start to think, well, hold on a second. I'm doing this right. You know, not going, like, I absolutely agree with you, not going over the top and saying, oh, that's wonderful. This is fantastic. But it's, it's, it's a matter of fact. You've done this. What else can you do? And then they start to see themselves, I think, in that light. And I've seen children transform over, over a number of months. You know, and I can only imagine what you've seen, Chris, working with pupils in a really intense situation over a, a number of years. Because it, it must have been marvelous to see the end when you had built up this child who thought, yeah, I can do this. I'm ready for secondary. You know, and, and equally, I'm thinking about how hard Sylvia's job must be. Because she, I think the closer you get to 16, the closer you get to a fully formed ego. You know, I'm not a psychologist. This is just me thinking about my experience of the world and how I interpret me and how I interpret my experience and the children I've seen. But I think, yeah, she must work tremendously hard for similar success that we experienced in primary. And so I think we are, at, we are at an advantage if people take the approach you guys have outlined. You know, I, I'm 100% with you on that. Well, what's, what's interesting about the differences between primary and secondary is that you, you get teaching assistants that go from classroom to classroom to classroom. And we'll often see for that reason, lots of different teachers. And one of the comments that Sylvia gets about her year seven and year eight classes where she's in th at this stage of her career has had the, the confidence and the courage to go right back to the beginning of mathematics where required. One of the comments she gets from teaching assistants is, I, I don't get it. This is a bottom set and yet they're doing mathematics. They're actually doing mathematics. And that's in some ways, that's how low the bar is because you'll go to set seven or set eight in year seven or year eight and year nine, and they are so switched off that it's just a battle, effectively. It's a battle to keep them in the room. It's just a case of, can I get through the lesson under certain circumstances? So I think you're dead right. I think the older, it, the older children get, the harder it is to unpick these issues. 
I almost don't want to say it, but I'm going to. The thing that popped into my head was there's a line in The Wire where I think it's Carver, who's growing into a really decent policeman, um, doesn't lock up these kids for a minor thing. And someone says, why not? And he says, well, until the handcuffs fit, there's talking to be done. And there's almost an extent to which this is the case. It's like, well, they're still young enough. There's, they can be turned around. They can still develop a positive relationship with mathematics. Now, I'm not suggesting necessarily that a child who is 15 and a half, who has not had that kind of education or not kind of the not had the kind of support that will allow them to do what you want them to do with mathematics, that 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 that, that is an age at which you can still turn things around. If there are teachers out there that can do that, wonderful. They are magicians. But it is certainly the case that um, there's still hope for children who are struggling with mathematics, even deep into secondary school. I think the key thing is, as I say, being willing to go down to the level of mathematics where the, that where the children initially started to struggle. And often that will be stuff, even in secondary school, that will be stuff that relates to content that is from year two, content that is from year one or year three. And um, yeah, schools are very rarely at secondary level given the, I should say, not school, sorry, teachers are very rarely given that level of trust at a secondary level, uh, unfortunately, to, to, from discussions I've had with secondary teachers anyway. If you think about the parallels this has with reading, you know, I, it's not my intention for us to take this podcast and make it the Thinking Deeply About Secondary Education podcast, but if you think about talking to colleagues about reading at secondary and being willing to go back to the phonetic level and the impact that that has on pupil progress in terms of decoding, fluency, and then success in other subjects. I think the conversation is very similar in terms of how we can help those children. You know, going right back to what Neil said, we need these children to be numerate and literate so that they can engage in society in a positive fashion. You know, I think every child deserves that. And I think we need to make sure that we as teachers are doing what we can and doing and as schools doing what we can to make sure that by the time they leave with their qualifications, whatever they may be, they are equipped for the things that life will throw at them and able to flourish. And I think you don't do that if you're enumerate or if you're illiterate, you know, so I think I think they're very important points. Just thinking from personal experience and my own my own dad who really struggled with literacy it's just that much harder to do the things that you want to do to contribute in the ways that you want to contribute if you have struggles with literacy, struggles with numeracy. I mean, both are, it's still utterly possible, but it's just how much more difficult it is for the individuals in place there. So I totally agree with you. One thing that I've also found, just going back to this confidence issue, is the amount of difference, especially further up the school you get, is that if there is some way you can arrange for that intervention to happen in your room. So there isn't that almost parading of those children who are get up, get out, leave the 20, 25 minutes, whatever, and then almost kind of do that walk of shame coming back in halfway through a lesson. Uh, if you can somehow arrange for it to make sure that you do can get those in, uh, your classroom um, that also makes you know a massive difference to 
their confidence with social creatures and children, particularly upper key stage two, year five, year six, you know, they can read a room, I think, better than any adult can. So they know what to latch on to. They know that there is that social shame of, you know, that physical movement of them having to leave the classroom to go and get some you know, remedial help. So if you can be clever with your timetable, so certainly uh, one of the first teachers that I kind of worked with uh, in my NQT year, she took upon herself basically, and I stolen the idea pretty much ever since that those first 20 minutes after lunch that's quote unquote intervention time if you don't need it you can find something to do independently whether that's you know you just read silently by yourself but those 20 minutes straight away after lunch i am working with an already predetermined with a group that you already know that needs an intervention and you just use those 20 minutes for something short and sharp so they're actually getting it there and then in that room and although there are you know children are doing different things it's still you know less of a social barrier than that physical having to move to another place to do that intervention yeah it comes down to trade-offs around the most arguably the most important thing that we develop in children in school or one of the most important things which is that sense of belonging so what I mean by trade-offs in belonging are that if you might have to say, okay, we're going to do 20 minutes with this group of children and they're not doing the same thing as the rest of their class, which might make them feel that, oh, they don't, to an extent that they don't belong in the same way, or it makes them feel so, somewhat divided, what you perhaps, you know, the, the cost of that is hopefully more than offset by the sense of belonging that those children gain from the fact that when it's maths time for an hour every day, they are part of it and they feel like they can flourish along with the rest of their class. So like you say there about keeping children ideally in the room where they usually are taught in order to have these interventions, minimizing the costs in terms of belonging and then maximizing the benefits in terms of belonging. I think actually there's a whole episode on the, sen the importance of belonging to children. The amount of times that I've seen children being reprimanded in a way that makes me think, no, you are, you are, you're unnecessarily cutting into this idea of belonging. When a teacher says, oh, no one else in the class does this, it's just you. There's another way to word that. <laughs> There's another way to word that that says you are part of our class and, and as an important part of our class as anyone. And thus, rather than why are you different? Why aren't you, why aren't you part of our group? I, like I say, I think there's a whole episode on belonging. I think it's a hugely um, under-discussed aspect of teaching generally. Um, it's probably talked about a bit in primary education, but... I think it could be something that's um, talked about more. Very briefly, if I may, just thinking about the idea of confidence a bit further. I don't think that um, there's any harm in calculated dishonesty with children in certain moments. And what I mean by that is I have lost count of the number of times in year five or six where a group of children have come across something that's particularly challenging 
and you can see they're wobbling a little bit and just being able to say, oh yeah, when I was in year five, this this caught me off guard a bit as well. It took me a bit longer, um, but it, it, it became really useful to me. So let's, let's, let's keep going with it. But even if that isn't necessarily the case, I think sometimes just putting you in their shoes and letting them see that it's perfectly normal to struggle in that way is something that I think is okay. I think you're absolutely right, Chris. We're definitely going to come back to some of the themes here in more depth in later episodes. But all that's left to say is thank you very much, Neil. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Christopher. Always a pleasure. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>